Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today we're going to be talking about electricity. The conversation is going to be illuminating, maybe a little shocking in parts, and uh, hopefully uh, Doug won't put my lights out because of all these bad puns. Our guest today is Robert Bryce, who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's the author of, I believe, five books, including Gusher of Lies, The Dangerous Delusions of Energy Independence, and Smarter, Faster, Cheaper, Denser, Lighter, How Innovation Keeps Proving Catastrophes Wrong. And he has a a new movie out called Juice about electricity that we're going to talk about along with a bunch of other stuff. So uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. So your work has tended to focus on energy and innovation, uh, but you didn't start out there. You had kind of a long career. How did you get interested in energy as a topic? Well, interestingly enough, it goes back now about 40 years. The first article I ever published was in my high school newspaper in Tulsa, uh, and it was an anti-nuclear piece Uh, at that time. City of Tulsa and some other entities in Oklahoma were considering building a nuclear plant called Black Fox, and I came out, you know, full bore against it, thought it was a terrible idea. Now, of course, 40 years later, I'm fully in favor, Um, but I've been writing about energy in the energy sector for, you know, I guess since high school, but really as a professional for uh, about 30 years. But that is partly due to my roots in Tulsa, uh, being an oil town, an energy town, but also you know, I, I, I just find the energy business to be fascinating, every part of it, from, you know, technology to finance to geopolitics. It's uh, it's uh, the most world's most biggest and most important business. Yeah, well, I also have found that, you know, over time, your opinions change on various things. At least they should. Uh, otherwise, you're you're probably not using using your uh, your brain to its full potential. So you think that it, you said that energy is a very interesting business. Uh, it's a very innovative business, uh, and your work, of course, deals in both energy and innovation. What are what would you say are some of the most exciting or uh, impressive innovations in the energy space that you've that in the last uh, decade or two? Oh well, that's that's an easy one. It's the 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 shale revolution. It's the combination of hydraulic fracturing and and horizontal drilling that have fundamentally changed the American uh, uh, energy position in the world, fundamentally uh, changed how America views itself in terms of uh, in energy production. Um, it is saving American consumers billions of dollars per year. Um, I, I've done some math on that. In fact, you know, we hear all of the time about, oh, wind and solar and, you know, innovation and batteries. Okay, fine. Yes, there we're seeing positive technology advancements in wind and solar and in batteries. But if you look at the last decade, since 2008, U.S. oil and gas production has increased together about 11 million barrels of oil equivalent per day. We've seen roughly a doubling of of oil and, of oil production. We've seen about a 50% increase in, in gas production. So just the increase is 11 million barrels of oil equivalent per day. That increase, again, just the increase is seven times 
the output of every solar panel and wind turbine in America. I mean, it's a story of scale, and it's just an undeniable story that, you know, doesn't get reported very often, but it, it, it speaks to the enormous innovation, the enormous amount of capital, the enormous amount of effort that is the oil and gas industry has put into um, extracting these hydrocarbons from, from shale resources that were once thought uh, Im- impermeable. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the, the current energy mix? I mean, I think you've hit on it a little bit, but what's sort of the breakdown, particularly in, uh, in the United States, what's the mix of energy sources? Well, of course, you know, we, we use more oil now. Oil is the biggest source of, of CO2 emissions because uh, 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 we, we run our entire transportation fleet, essentially, you know, 90 some odd percent of it on oil. Um, coal share is declining. I don't, I don't have those percentages right in front of me, but coal share of the electricity mix is declining. Natural gas, of course, is, is increasing. Gas, we use more gas now to produce electricity than any other fuel. Nuclear share of electricity is about 20%. Um, and then, you know, you have solar and wind that are growing, but are still uh, combined in the single digits in terms of overall uh, primary energy consumption in the United States. From a, from a policy perspective, how should we factor in uh, what the proper mix is? Should we have like a national policy that sets targets for a certain uh, mix of energy sources? You know, it's a good question. And my short answer would be no. Because if you look at the history of energy policy in America, they it always go, gets it wrong, right? When you look at the 1970s, for instance, what, what happened? Well, there were prohibitions and, and extreme restrictions on, on the sale of interstate natural gas. So you didn't, Texas was gas rich, but it couldn't send its gas to Ohio or to the East Coast. So what did Congress do in its finite wisdom? It passed the Industrial uh, Power Plant and Fuel Use Act of 1978, I think it was, prohibited the use of natural gas effectively in new electric generation plants, with the result being that encouraged under the Carter administration, utilities all across the country built coal-fired power plants because we were convinced that natural gas was we're running out. There was no more to be found. Well, what happened? Well, then now some 30 years later, the Obama administration comes in and effectively mandates the use of natural gas as a electricity generation fuel while attacking the coal industry and trying to shut down coal plants. So, you know, whenever you look at what federal policy in particular has been on energy, invariably they get it wrong. You make a great point there. Uh, and I think to tie a couple of your answers together, no one saw, very few people saw the shale revolution coming. In fact, you know, uh, up until, you know, the middle of the 2000s, it was just kind of an assumption that we're going to see high priced natural gas for the foreseeable future. You know, uh, so, uh, you know, that's kind of a big problem in planning. And then, you know, as you point out, one reason we have so many coal plants today is because government had its thumb on the scale trying to prevent natural gas to be used for electricity. Then, of course, uh, having done that, now they, they come back and they want to try and shut down some of the coal plants or put more restrictions on them. So, it, you know, I think that that just kind of sums up the folly uh, or futility, perhaps, uh, of trying to have government plan everything because they just don't know. <laughs> they, they don't know what the future is going to hold. You know, if I knew, I would be a rich man, but uh, at least I don't have pretensions about it. 
Sure. Well, and this is the hard part because I wrestle with this very issue and I say, well, you know, government shouldn't be involved. But what we have now, particularly in the electricity market, is interventions on numerous different levels. And so you have big subsidies for wind energy. You have the 30% investment tax credit for solar, which, by the way, I took and I have solar panels on the roof of my house. Why? Because I got three different subsidies for doing so. But at the same time, you know, I, I was uh, I spoke just the other day about the conservative case for nuclear energy, because I'm I say, you know, government shouldn't intervene, but I'm adamantly pro nuclear. And is some of that out of concern for climate change? Well, yeah, I think that we should be reducing CO2 emissions if we can. But my my ideas about the conservative case for nuclear are three points. One, it conserves open space. The power density of, of nuclear energy is unsurpassed. And because it, it has such a small footprint, it makes sense to preserve open space and not cover the world with wind turbines and solar panels and ethanol plants. We, we know how to produce electricity from very small footprints, and we should. Explain what power density means uh, for the layman. Sure. Well, I'll just give you the quick example. So I was in, in May, I went to the Indian Point Energy Center in, in uh, New York, in, in Buchanan, New York. It's about 40, 45 miles north of Times Square. That plant covers one square kilometer. One square kilometer produces roughly 16 terawatt hours per year, it provides 25% of New York City's electricity. Well, to replace that nuclear plant output, that 16 terawatt hours of electricity per year with wind energy would require covering more than 1,300 square kilometers. So what is power density? Power density is the measure of the energy flow that can be harnessed from a given area, volume, or mass. So the power density of the Indian Point nuclear plant in Buchanan, New York, is roughly 2,000 watts per square meter. The power density of a wind turbine is about one to three watts per square meter. So, you know, this is a basic metric in physics. And if, you know, the Republican Party, conservatives, Theodore Roosevelt, have have long advocated for preservation of open space. Well, to me, that's one of the best arguments for nuclear that there is. Does that mean we need government intervention? Well, in some cases, it, we do because wind and solar are being subsidized. The, the, these plants are being undercut by cheap natural gas. And it leads to my second reason why I believe in supporting nuclear. We need to make sure we stabilize the grid, that we have enough baseload generation capacity to get us through the times when other resources aren't available. And we saw that during the, the cold bomb in January when, you know, a lot of uh, wind and solar weren't available. Natural gas was at super premium prices and we needed coal and nuclear plants to stay on, on, on the grid to, to make sure everybody had enough electricity. You, you've mentioned uh, climate change and we've talked a little bit about emissions. Do you have any opinion on uh, whether or not uh, there should be carbon taxes to maybe uh, dis disincentivize production of certain dirtier uh, energy sources. I mean, this this debate, you know, it keeps coming up, you know, regularly in in conservative circles, and of course, George Schultz and and uh, uh, Jim Baker came out with their proposal. What was it a year or two ago? And then there's a new one being pushed, I guess, by the congressman from Florida. In 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 a perfect world, a carbon tax would work. But the idea that the U.S. will impose a carbon tax and then other countries will follow, I'm sorry, I just don't believe it. I mean, look, we can't even ban landmines on an international basis. The idea that we're going to have some internationally harmonized carbon tax, I think is just, you know, it's just not going to happen. And I also just think the the political resistance to it 
of taxing every, you know, essentially every bit of energy that we consume, I think it's a political non-starter. In a perfect world, a carbon tax is a perfect solution, but we live in an imperfect world. I wanted to go back. You said that there were three reasons why you support nuclear. I think you you, you mentioned the uh, the first two, the power density, and then uh, the stability, I guess, of, of the product. So it, I don't believe you got to the the third one. So I just wanted sure. to give you a chance so, to do that. Conserve open space, stabilize the grid. And, and the last one is it's technology leadership. The U.S. has led the world in, in nuclear technology since the days of the Manhattan Project. Today, the U.S. nuclear energy sector produces twice as much electricity uh, per year as from nuclear as, as the French. But we're losing out now to the Russians. We're losing out now to the South Koreans, to the Chinese. You know, I, I, I'm, am I arguing for uh, the, the, the national champion that we're going to be like uh, Russia and, and promote Ross Adam? Well, I'm not necessarily suggesting that as the immediate example to follow. But I, at the same time, the U.S. is losing the the battle to field the next generation of nuclear reactors. And I think the Department of Energy and the Trump administration needs to be vastly more uh, energetic in promoting and developing the next generation of smaller, safer, cheaper reactors that uh, could be the the next big thing in electricity generation over the next few decades. But I just think we've, we've uh, you know, we've lost that opportunity and I don't see the U.S. regaining it, but I, I still think it's an important point. So you laid out the three reasons there uh, and, you know, people might have uh, find some of them more compelling than others. You know, there's debate on all these points, I suppose. But assuming that, you know, you, you do see that there's a value for nuclear power, the big problem that nuclear has been facing recently, ha- you know, it's subject to a lot of regulation, et cetera. But the big factor has been the, the low cost, na- low price natural gas, which you mentioned, you know, what sort of policies would you would you see or favor to try and ensure that we remain uh, a, a leader in nuclear power that we have whatever maintain whatever nuclear power that you you think is is necessary or valuable sure well i think one option obviously is well if we're going to give these lavish subsidies to solar and wind well maybe that's the other option for nuclear is give them a subsidy maybe it doesn't have to be as big as what we're giving to solar and wind but give nuclear a subsidy to recognize its low carbon benefits um you know and i i hesitate to advocate for subsidies but at the same time we've seen the electricity market become so distorted um by these some of these mandates and 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 subsidies that i think it's defensible for instance negative pricing in the marketplace so I think there are a number of different ways that this could work. I mean, you've seen the state of New York, for instance, already providing um, some subsidies for the upstate nuclear plants, but not for Indian Point. So, I mean, I, there are a number of ways that this could happen. But I think, you know, to me, it's it's not just about the short game and preserving existing reactors. It's also the long game on developing this next generation of reactors where uh, I think that for fairly modest costs, the DOE, the Natural, Re- the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission could really be in a leadership role there, and they're they're fundamentally just not. I kind of like nuclear as a technology. Uh, I think it's great. I think that there's a lot of potential there. In one of your books, I believe there's a, there's a quote in there. You you cite someone who says that nuclear is solar power for conservatives. Right. Yeah, you know, it's a, a, and I don't know if that was that was you or if you were quoting someone else. Uh, 
I think you might have been. But, you know, the basic idea there is, you know, so a lot of environmentalists or some people, they just they like solar. It, it gives them like a, a nice warm feeling inside. And, and, and you know, they just want to throw money at it. And sometimes maybe conservatives, there's a similar sort of thing. You know, it, it taps into notions of American greatness. Right. Uh, being, you know, nuclear power or whatever. So, to, you know, to what extent is that something that we should guard against to say, well, is is nuclear really something that is worthy of these supports or you know are we are we letting our kind of uh nostalgic emotions you know get in the way of letting the market deal with you know what the what the power mix should be sure well as i said before what we've seen in the electricity markets lately is that they have become very distorted because for instance, wind energy gets priority uh, in in the dispatch uh, queue for in a lot of markets. So that's a distortion. So I understand that idea. Of let's stand back and just let the market take over. But remember, the the electric utility business from the very beginning has always been the subject of tensions between the private interest and the public interest. And so what is the public interest? The public interest is cheap, abundant, reliable electricity that is as clean as it can be, right? As clean as we can afford. So I think that there, you know, in terms of the public interest and, and maintaining a, a vibrant grid and moreover, a diverse fuel mix, that there's value in that diversity alone. So I can make that non-free market argument, but I think that you know that you're, you're right, and I take your point about this idea of American greatness and technology leadership and so on. But it, it, that is one of the way areas where America does pride itself as being a technology leader, and this is a sector in which we've long been uh, a leader in technology, and we have numerous national uh, national laboratories that are nuclear focused. Well, what better thing would they be tasked with than okay? You, you built the reactors that we have now or design or help design or help, you know, develop them. Well, why don't you start developing the next generation and show that that can be done? I mean, we have the, these people, we have the, the campuses, we have the, the personnel. Well, you know, why not use them to 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 do that very task, regardless of what you think about climate change? Yeah. So that's very interesting. And, and you do raise a, a very good point. You know, here in Texas, most of the state, we have a competitive electricity market for generation and so forth. Not not me personally, because I, I live in the People's Republic of Austin. But in most of the state, we have competitive generation. That's not true everywhere. In a lot of parts of, in a lot of states, electricity is run as a monopoly utility, right? So the, the heavy hand of the state is very involved in every part of the process. So you don't you don't exactly have a, a free market always. Okay, so let's let's talk about Juice. Uh, so you you have a you have a movie out and it's the title is Juice, uh, but it's not about orange juice or apple juice. Uh, what is it about? Well, it's not out yet. Um, we're just uh, getting in the, in the final month or so of the uh, post-production. The movie will, um, we're going to submit it to the Sundance Film Festival next month. Um, the idea then to premiere it um, next year. And uh, the title is Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. And what we've done, we've gone to Iceland, we've been to India, Lebanon, Puerto Rico, Colorado, New York traveled about 60,000 uh, 60, miles. Uh, what's the gist of it? it? We're telling the human story of electricity. This is the world's most important and fastest growing form of energy. And what we saw and what we continue to see is that electric grids in every country that we went to are, are effectively a perfect reflection of the societies and, and that they empower. So 
what do they do in Iceland? They mine, they smelt aluminum and mine Bitcoin. Well, in Beirut, they have blackouts every day because the grid has been hobbled by warfare and corruption. So um, we really uh, took uh, a lot of time to interview about 50 different people from all over the world to get their views on electricity and where we are and where the world is going. It, it, talk a little bit about the Bitcoin mining in Iceland. That was something that in the trailer was very intriguing to me. Sure. Yeah, they, they, you know, electricity in Iceland for industrial users, I, I say it's almost free. Well, it is about almost free. And for a lot of them, you know, they're paying less than 10 cents a kilowatt hour sometimes. In some cases, about even maybe half of that. So um, Iceland has cheap, abundant, reliable electricity, and it's all renewable. They get 75% of their electricity from hydro and the other 25% from geothermal. So we went to hydro plants, we went to geothermal plants in, in Iceland, went and talked with Bitcoin miners and, uh, you know, they're expanding very rapidly. Um, now, we were there last October when the price of Bitcoin was over $10,000. So there was a lot of uh, froth in the market now then. But, you know, from, from what I see that, you know, the the Bitcoin story is not over. It's, you know, it's turbulent and there's a lot of market market gyrations. But uh, if you're going to mine Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, you have to have a lot of juice. Yeah. And uh, so my understanding of the way that the mining works is that, you know, to get a Bitcoin, you have to do some these complicated math equations or calculations or whatever. It takes all sorts of computer power. And so they just have, you know, massive computers running all the time trying to do these calculations to get to get the Bitcoin. That's the mining. And I know, you know, there's been a lot of talk increasingly about, well, this is this is using a lot a lot of electricity. It's a, a waste of power, etc. Do you have a perspective on that i mean is it is it wasteful is there is there do you see some sort of problem there uh that that people are using that much electricity you know just to try and get these cryptocurrencies i don't have a problem with it if you're going to create something that you say has value well you have to put something into it right if you're going to go out and you know try and sell gold well why is gold worthwhile or why is it valuable? Because it's hard to get, right? You have to put a lot of effort into getting it out of the ground and smelting it and, you know, getting into the shop and all the rest of it. You know, I think the same in, in the case of cryptocurrency, I see that argument being the same thing. You, you know, you can't just get a pair of scissors and cut out a piece of paper and call it currency. I think the idea that somebody has to do work to create that store of value makes perfect sense. So, you know, the other point about Iceland and some of these Nordic countries now, why they're attracting these cryptocurrency miners is that, yeah, not only do they have cheap electricity, but the, the weather's always cool, so you don't need air conditioning. So effectively, they can all the electricity they pump into the data center gets used for computing instead of for, for cooling, which is uh, one of the key aspects or key energy consumers in data centers in, in uh, areas of the world that aren't as cool as the Nordic countries. So in Iceland, we just, you know, they just pull these massive fans and they just pull outside air into these big warehouses and the outside air cools the machines down. So there's no no air conditioners in sight. In your uh, in the trailer for your movie, there is, uh, I believe, an Indian woman that's talking about the importance of coal for the supply of electricity in India. So should we, you know, be concerned in, in the West uh, about, you know, less clean en energy sources being used in the third world? world. Is that something that we should be f focused on? Well, in our visit to India, you know, the level of pollution, it, I mean, it, it defies description. Uh, I think something like 22 or 23 of the 
50 most air polluted cities in the world are in India. Um, and for all the talk about India running on coal, the fact is that India really runs on biomass stoves and little twig fires that people make to cook their dinner. So all of this contributes to this unbelievable air pollution in cities like Calcutta and Delhi and, you know, things that would never be allowed in the United States. You know, as to what extent we in the West and the, and the, the wealthy countries can be concerned about it and, and shake our fingers and say, oh, you shouldn't. Well, you know, I'll let somebody else tell them they shouldn't be prosperous like we are. But, it's you know, let's be clear when it comes to coal that, yes, India gets 70, 75% of its electricity from coal-fired power plants. But if you look at the latest edition of the BP Statistical Review, it shows very clearly that coal's share of the global electricity market has been about 38 or 40% since the mid-1980s. So for all this talk that the Sierra Club is pushing about beyond coal and we need to quit using coal and it's so, so dirty and all the rest of it, I understand that sentiment, but the reality is that coal's share of the global market in, 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 the, in, in, the, in the electricity sector globally has effectively been the same now for three decades, and I think it's going to maintain a significant market share for decades to come. Well, what about here in the United States? Uh, should we be uh, bailing out the coal industry? Yeah, you know, this is a hard one because I, it, it, it is like the nuclear sector in that they these plants provide baseload capacity. And what the Trump administration has been trying to do is to say, well, we're going to give subsidies to plants that have their fuel on site and that as a way kind of around talking about subsidies and the rest of it, that we're going to give some favors to these plants because they are effectively autonomous, right? That they, they have stores of electricity, of fuel on site, unlike gas plants that are going to have to be refueled or oil-fired plants that are going to have to be refueled, that, that there's some value in that. And, you know, I can see that argument and why they're making it. And when you look at what happened in, in the Northeast and in the PJM uh, grid during the cold bomb, it was really the coal and the nuclear plants that kept the lights on. And so, you know, it's easy to say, well, let's just shut them down and we don't really need them and the rest of it. But what happens if we get more extreme weather and then we have blackouts? Are we going to rue the day when we shut those plants down? I'm not saying that we will. Maybe we make it through. But again, I think it's worth that discussion of saying, well, what's the proper diversity in the fuel mix? And I think that that's a question that really hasn't been addressed. You know, we talk about electricity markets and we talk about oil markets and natural gas markets and the rest of it. The thing that makes electricity so difficult to discuss is that we have 50 different states with 50 different electricity regulators, right? And then we have the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission at the federal level. We have the regional grids and, you know, whether it's ERCOT or PJM or, or, or the Cal ISO, all of them have says in how the how things are supposed to work. So, you know, the, the electricity business, man, if you're a lobbyist in that market, I think you have full-time employment because it's just so incredibly complicated that you got to be a lawyer to, to understand how it all works. Yes. Well, and I am a lawyer, uh, or I was at least, uh, and I still don't completely understand how it all works. <laughs> uh, I, I will say I, I am a little skeptical of uh, some of these bailout proposals. I, I think obviously there are there is a value to you know having a resilient grid. Uh, I don't know that necessarily payments for having stockpilers or whatever. I, I'm not sure that that's the best way to uh, deal with that. Uh, it probably uh, could be a, a useful. Thing for us to uh, explore in a, a future podcast, uh, just because it's such a such a big topic. But I did want to talk a little bit about some of your books. 
Um, we got a request on Twitter uh, when we announced that we were going to be doing this podcast with you. Uh, someone said, oh, you should ask him about uh, his his first book, which I think is called Cronies. Uh, the Cronies was my second book. My first book was called Pipe Dreams. It was uh, Greed, Ego, and the Death of Enron. But yeah, my second book was Cronies, Oil, the Bushes, and the Rise of Texas, America's Superstate. Yes, well, it's it's to me, I, all of my books uh, have kind of grown out of the one before. My book on Enron was obviously about why this company that was the world's or America's most admired company, how did it go bankrupt and why? Uh, the short answer is it ran out of cash, <laughs> which is what happens when you go <laughs> bankrupt. But the the but cronies really grew out of Enron the Enron book because in, in writing uh, pipe dreams I realized well how had Texas become such a politically powerful state and a lot of that was due to the oil industry that you know LBJ was able to to uh, you know win the election in 1948 for Senate from Coke Stevenson largely because he had sacks of money that he got from the oil magnates in the state including Sid Richardson and others but it was also the oil industry that helped give uh, both George Bush's their their start and and a lot of their fundraising capability came from people in the oil and gas business George W Bush's finance chair was Rich Kinder who was a former Enron executive so the the succession of the books and and I'm also working on a book in tandem with the documentary my next one's going to be on electricity as well so and they've all just kind of come it seems to me kind of naturally out of the one that came before so i'm, I'm listening to your uh smaller faster lighter denser cheaper that's a mouthful so is are you just really a sort of a glass half full kind of guy it's a pretty optimistic book i think the glass is more than half full you know i think that it's an exciting time to be alive when you look at the fact globally um poverty is on the run disease is on the run education is up um voting rights among women and and women's suffrage is up and the 2000, 2012 olympics for the first time women uh and all from all the the countries that were competing including in saudi arabia women were allowed to compete the the, the trends are just incredibly positive for humans all around the world and that is in large part because of we're making things smaller faster lighter denser cheaper technology is helping us advance and whether it's in you know plant genetics and improving those uh, better fertilizers you know better smartphones better computers you know, all of these things are in, incredibly positive for humans, and um, and and a lot of that is really about the story of energy and the story of electricity. As electricity has been made more available globally, people are flourishing like never before. In a time where you have you know people like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and Bernie Sanders going on and on about income uh, inequality, do you find it difficult to spread this message of prosperity and optimism? You know, just a quick word about this, Alexandria Ocasio. Cortez, I wrote a piece that was in the New York Post a few weeks ago. You know, she's a socialist. Okay, great. You know, fine. Be a socialist. But what is one of her platforms? And the same with Bernie Sanders. They're promoting 100% renewable energy. That's their no no hydrocarbons, no oil, coal, gas, no nuclear, all renewables. Well, okay, so you're a, a woman of the people. You're a man of the people. You're for la gente and, you know, socialist and all the rest of it. Why then are you promoting the energy forms that are the most expensive and have been proven to raise electricity costs over the ones that are cheaper for people that are struggling to pay the light bill. I mean, I just, I, I just fundamentally don't get it. There, there's a disconnect in the Democratic Party in the, in the, in the, the, the left, leftmost part of the Democratic Party where they have this idea, oh. 100% renewables and climate change, this is the only solution. I mean, it's not the solution. It's impossible. You're not going to run the world on 100% renewables unless you decide to pave 
areas the size of California with nothing but wind turbines. That's not going to happen. And yet they, they keep pushing this cra- these, frankly, just crazy ideas because it's, it's very politically expedient for them to push that agenda. But, um, but I just, you know, I've, I've followed this, this madness for years. It's been promoted by the Sierra Club and the Natural Resources Defense Council and a lot of Greenpeace and 350.org. And it's been picked up by the, you know, the, 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 the far left in the Democratic Party. But it just from an economic sense, from an from a, a economic standpoint, from a pure conservation of open space standpoint, it's, it's lunacy. But they keep pushing it. So what, what do you think, uh, what ought to be the kind of you know, uh, appropriate responses to climate change or the the risks from climate change. Obviously, there are there are some uncertainties out there, but there's also, I think, some reason to believe that you know there's some some risks and costs associated with it. You mentioned that it would be good to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, if we could, uh, but that you know, uh, 100% renewables may maybe not the maybe not the most cost effective way to do that you know do you have any thoughts of what uh, an alternative approach might be well i think that we're seeing some of those alternatives already coming to the fore you see uh, when we were in lebanon in october uh, we visited a place called kirzai which is up in the lebanese mountains and in a country that really runs on diesel fuel and gasoline fired uh, generators they were running a complete resort just on solar panels and lead acid batteries so Solar and batteries in in a lot of places that are rural and in areas where there is no other option, those are going to be viable. But I think as the as the as the market matures, I think it's going to become more widespread. But I think that um, you know the platform that I've been pushing for a long time is natural gas and nuclear. If we're going to be serious about CO2 emission reduction, then cutting uh, CO2 emissions from coal will be part of that. And then as nuclear matures and proliferates around the world. Um, uh, and I use proliferate in the non-weapon sense, but as nuclear gets more mature and the, and the technology is more available, I think that this makes perfect sense. And, and we see the, the maturation of the natural gas market already underway with the U.S. exporting huge amounts of LNG. Yeah, so I believe the IEA a couple of years back had predicted that the United States, or they may have been uh, specific to North America in general, uh, would be a net exporter of petroleum. Uh, by the, uh, I guess, the 2020s. And I guess we sort of think of that as energy independence, but this administration likes to talk about energy dominance. Do you have an idea of what the difference might be between energy independence versus energy dominance, and are either policies uh, worth pursuing? Energy independence is the most hackneyed phrase in American politics. I mean, it's just... We just have keep hearing this over and over since the days of the Nixon administration. Well, what I mean, come on, it just... <laughs> What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. And uh, the Secretary of Energy, Perry, used this idea, oh, true energy independence. Well, true energy independence versus untrue energy independence? What is, I mean, it doesn't, it's, look, it's a convenient phrase. The idea, I wrote a whole book on it called Gusher of Lies, The Dangerous Delusions of Energy Independence. You know, this idea that we're going to run the world on, uh, on just, or we're going to be divorced, rather, from global energy markets is fundamentally wrong. It is not going to happen. You know, this, uh, well, what is energy independence? Well, oh, we're an island? Well, no, we're not an island. The U.S. exports large amounts of crude oil. And are we then dependent on the buyers or are they dependent on us? No, we're interdependent. But that's the way it's always been. We live in an interdependent world. It's, you know, nothing has changed. Yeah, probably the, the country that would come closest to energy independence uh, would be some place like North Korea <laughs> or whatnot, where they just don't trade with other people. Because uh, once, 
when you're trading, you can't really be independent in, in, in a strict sense, as you as you say. Uh, it does seem like something that perhaps more of a slogan than an actual realistic or valuable policy there. Well, it's an, it's a, it's an, it's an empty headed slogan. I mean, you know, energy dominance. Well, what does that mean? I mean, uh, we don't, oh, we're going to not going to sell it to you. No, we're going to sell it to you well, this is part of the interdependent global marketplace. And, you know, we're interdependent in everything, whether it's bottled water and beer or tennis rackets and tennis shoes. We trade all of these things all the time. But somehow there's this idea, oh, energy's different. Well, we're only supposed to be able to producing American and using American energy. Well, why? We don't say the same thing about French wine. We like French wine. We like French cheese. We like Irish cheese and Irish butter and, you know, I don't know. And Irish you know, whiskey. Irish whiskey, cinnamon from the Spice Islands. What? Oh, we're supposed to be cinnamon independent? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> come on. It, it, the, 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 it's all this kind of sloganeering that means ultimately nothing. But, uh, you know, I think for a lot of uh, industries, you know, particularly the corn ethanol scam, they've used it very effectively as a way to, um, you know, get more subsidies. All right, Doug, do you have another? Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting in Houston, so the question that everybody always wants to know anytime I go to any energy event in Houston is, at year end, what do you predict the, uh, the price of oil to be? <laughs> well, it'll be uh, either higher or lower than it is now. That's what I predict. <laughs> okay, folks, uh, talk to your broker. Oil is either going to be higher or lower than it is now, so you heard it here first. Robert Bryce has been our guest today. Thank you very much for coming on the program. Uh, good luck with the movie. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, look for it. And uh, uh, my website, uh, robertbryce.com, or if you want to look at the movie, juicethemovie.com. All right. Well, I'm, I'm currently listening to Robert Bryce's book, Smaller, Faster, Lighter, Denser, Cheaper. And as we discussed, it's a very optimistic view about innovation and human progress. And interestingly enough, I'm, um, I've, I've just finished one of Stephen Goldsmith's books on smart cities, and it's called the uh, the New City Operating System. Um, but his uh, series that he does at Governing.com is called Faster, Better, Cheaper, and so it's sort of a similar concept, even though it's very different fields. And I would say both of these guys are men of the right, and so it's it's interesting uh, looking at uh, some of these thinkers who are talking about how innovation can be used, uh, I guess you could say, for conservative purposes. We often think of conservatism as something that kind of harkens back to the past, maybe looks to sort of a nostalgic era. But I find that really interesting that there's sort of this school of thought out there that's trying to meld conservatism with innovation and looking forward. Do you think that there's sort of room for a futuristic version of conservatism? Uh, yeah, I definitely do. Uh, to quote Plan 9 from Outer Space, you know, we're all interested in the future because that's where we're going to be spending the rest of our lives. So a conservatism that didn't speak to the future would just be a museum, you know, or a historical interest only. Uh, so I, I definitely think that value of conservatism is in how you can apply the lessons and traditions of the past to the future. 
Uh, and I, I definitely think that that is possible. And we talked about, you know, there were some of that was woven into the conversation that we had. I, I kind of feel like we covered so much ground and, and there are so many topics that we just kind of touched on that would be worth their own podcast, you know, the nuclear power in general, the bailout issue, uh, carbon tax. All, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff to cover. Hopefully we'll be able to get around to it as we go forward. Absolutely. I think those are all great topics. Uh, the next topic we have is we're going to have a conversation with Michael Hendricks, who's also from the Manhattan Institute. And it's also going to be sort of continuing this theme of looking forward. Uh, Michael uh, writes some on uh, smart cities technologies, and he's recently written an article um, on the demographic issues of the conservative movement and how they're struggling um, with younger voters. We'll have a conversation with him next week. And given the, his background in those uh, these two topics, I'm sure it'll be very forward looking. Yes, I just want to reassure any of our Texas listeners, even though our guests, both Robert Rice and Michael Hendricks, are with the Manhattan Institute, they're also both Texans. Uh, right. So don't worry. All right. Well, we'll uh, look forward to speaking with you again next week.